Today we enter into uh, James chapter 5, so if you turn there with me, that would be wonderful. As we, as we turn to James 5, we, uh, we enter into obviously the last chapter uh, of our study in James. And, um, you know, I, I want to mention something. If, if by now in our study of James you're feeling a bit like, wow, James has packed a punch um, I think you should feel good about that because that means you've been paying attention to the Word of God. Because James comes, does he not? James comes like someone with a surgeon's knife. The Lord has used James to cut deeply into my heart um, and, and affect me in deep ways. I mean, who of us can avoid being convicted when James tells us, for example, that we all struggle with the use of our tongue, that we're, we're always to treat people with impartiality, that, that we're not to, to surrender to the uh, temptation to gossip, even in a little bit. I mean, who of us can escape those kinds of things? We find ourselves uh, cut to the heart. We, we feel the surgeon's knife because the surgeon wants to bring healing. So imagine if, if you yourself had a cancerous growth in your body, you wouldn't go to the doctor and you wouldn't want him to say, hey, well, you know, say some nice words about you or offer to give you a massage. You would say to the doctor, no, cut me open. I know this is going to be painful. Cut me open and get it out because that's the only way I'll live. See, James knows that. And he doesn't take, you know, time to get there quietly. He just, he comes with the surgeon's scalpel to remove the cancer from us. And so I, I just want to encourage you, if you've been feeling the knife, that's, that's actually good. That's God's intention for us. And in fact, we're going to feel the knife again today out of God's care for us in this passage that we're going to read in just a moment. So, so let, let's ask together, let's ask God as we hear the word of God now, let's ask him to prepare our hearts that we might, that we might hear him and, and feel his care for us as he addresses us in his word. I remind us as we read James 5 verses 1 through 6 that this is not any mere words of a man. This is the very word of God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Lord, we hear your word this morning, and this is a hard word. And so, God, please help us to attune to it, because you want to cut us by your grace so that we might grow and that we might further uh, take the shape of your Son, 
Jesus Christ. So, Lord, for these next few minutes together, shape us by your word, Lord. Cause it to have the effect for which you gave it. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard the news this week of the signing of the most expensive baseball player for the 2023 MLB season. Uh, I, his, his fun name is Showtime Otani. He's a pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels. He's from Japan, and he is an unusual kind of man because he can throw with incredible heat, and he can bat like Barry Bonds, and so he's a double threat. And he's going to make, get this, this is ridiculous, $65 million just for one year. Now, $65 million for, for one year with likely guaranteed money up to and over $500 million over the next 10 years. Now, let me ask you, can you imagine what you would do with that kind of money? I don't know how you respond when you hear that kind of money being paid to someone who can throw a ball and hit a ball with accuracy $500 million to throw a ball. I can't believe it. But, but the thing that my mind goes to is I can find my heart wondering what it might be like to have $65 million. See, none of us, none of us daydream about poverty. None of us. We all daydream about wealth. Some of us more than others. And, and James is writing to the church this morning to, to remind them of the snare of wealth and not to envy those who have it. This text is admittedly a difficult one to interpret. And, um, and I, I had my work cut out for me this week in, in reading many sources um, to understand uh, I think the meaning of this text, and um, and I side with John Calvin from the 16th century and his interpretation, and many since then have taken his interpretation that says this: that these verses one through six of James, they they definitely take a different tone as James is speaking with a prophetic like word. It's prophetic in that it offers no hope of repentance or restoration. And therefore, um, I'm convinced that this particular section of James, unlike all the rest of James, is, is predominantly addressed to the unbelieving wealthy. This is a, a, a form of prophetic speech that addresses a group that's actually not present in the hearing of the reading. And we see this form of speech from time to time, both in the Old and in the New Testaments. We see it happen in both places. Let me illustrate. As you're aware, from time to time, God in the Old Testament used, used prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, others. He used prophets to pronounce judgment on specific nations that were surrounding the people of Israel. However, those nations were not actually present when those judgments were pronounced as they were declared in Israel by Israel's prophets. 
So in that sense, when those prophets spoke those judgments over the unbelieving nations out there, they were speaking to an absent audience. They weren't actually present to hear the judgments being pronounced. Yet through those judgments, God was still instructing his people. In other words, if you were an Israelite in the hearing of the prophet Isaiah as he rendered God's judgment on a nearby nation because of their idol worship, that would have an effect on you because you'd go home and make sure that in your household there was no idol worship going on in your own household. So though the prophet was speaking to a declaration over someone out there, in the hearing of it, it would affect you yourself. So God would instruct his people in the pronouncing of these judgment on unbelieving nations. There was another thing that God was accomplishing in using this form of prophetic speech as well. He was bringing comfort to his people. He was bringing hope to persevere. So imagine yourself for the reading of this word. Imagine yourself in a recipient of this letter in James Day as he was reading it. Imagine yourself someone who was deeply affected by the gross mismanagement of your own employer. Perhaps he wasn't paying you. Perhaps they weren't being faithful to give you your wages. And you heard this pronouncement of God's judgment that God sees and God knows all and that he will set all things that are wrong, he will make them all right in his time and in his way. Do you think you would receive comfort and hope by that? You would. You would be able to trust God and continue to go on. So God was accomplishing both things in Israel's time. Jesus used the same form of speech when he pronounced uh, woes to Chorazim and other cities and instructed. And in the same manner, so James here, I believe, is instructing the church by declaring a judgment on the unbelieving wealthy. So that frames how we view these verses. So we're going to take a look first at the pronouncements that are made over the unbelieving wealthy, and then we'll take some time to consider application for our lives in the day-to-day. So first of all, the pronouncement of judgment. Look at verse 1 with me again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Wow, what, what a beginning, what a start. Come now, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Again, this is the language of the prophets uh, when they're describing the response of the unbelieving nations when the, the coming of the judgment of the Lord is upon them. There was weeping. The, their situation was terrible. There was howling. I don't know if you've heard someone howl lately, but it's, it's awful. Because unbelievers who persist in rejecting God's offer of forgiveness, the judgment of God will be swift. It will be just. It will be, in that sense, awful. It will cause weeping and howling. And these unregenerated wealthy, having lived in their own practice for their own selves, they will come to judgment someday. And he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Then he illustrates over the next 
five verses the ways in which they have demonstrated um, their, their lack of care for people. So we see in verse 2 and 3, first of all, the stockpiling, selfish stockpiling of wealth. What does the verse 2 and 3 says? Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. My goodness, I can't imagine more graphic language. This is judgment. This is God's severe judgment. These ungodly rich have stockpiled and accumulated wealth. They've stockpiled their gold and silver. They've thought that they're... they're, they're stockpiling for their own means, but they come to find in the final analysis that these very things, their, their treasures, the things that they held on to the most were like ruins. So, so how did you impress people back in, in first century Palestine? Well, you dressed in fine linens and, and you changed your clothes often in your fine regalia to demonstrate the power of your wealth that you could buy any clothes that you want. Well, what happened to those royal linen clothes? They are now moth-eaten and, and good to be thrown away and destroyed. You accumulate silver and gold, and, and we know that, uh, that these elements are in fact uh, uncorruptible. But in a prophetic way, James says, the very things that you have placed your trust in, they have rusted. They have been corrupted. They are good for rubble. It, it almost seems as if James, remember who his half-brother is? His half-brother is Jesus. I wonder if James had in mind the teaching of Jesus where he says in the Beatitudes in Matthew 6, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Moths are destroying their fine linens and their gold and silver is now rotting away. The worldly goods that they coveted so much and cheated other people out of in order to gather simply for themselves to stockpile, they are rusting away and they are worthless. This is the judgment of God. See, God gives us resources so that we can experience His provision and His care. And also we can be agents of His provision and care as we, as we give those things out. As God prospers us, we can give it away. John Calvin, in reading him, he says it this way, God has not appointed gold for rust nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. When we are blessed, God gives us the opportunity to bless others. When we have, because God has been gracious to us, then we are positioned to care for other people. So God's not appointed gold to rust and linens for moths. No, he's appointed those things to be distributed, to be enjoyed, to be granted thanks for as God's provision for us as he has been good. And these wealthy, unregenerated people have stockpiled it selfishly for their own gain for their own means. And that which they had once trusted will provide no relief in the final day as the misery 
of God's judgment comes upon them. This is a strong word. This is a, a, a striking word. So, number one, the unrighteous wealthy were selfishly stockpiling wealth. They also had gained it by fraud. You see it there in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So this wealth that's been accumulated by these, these landowners uh, has been done fraudulently. They've, they've lined their own cribs upon the backs of the workers, upon the backs of the laborers. And according to historians in Palestine at this time in first century, there was an increasing concentration of a large amount of land in the hands of a very few. And so they could justify the ill treatment of workers because, hey, there's plenty of workers always around. And their practices were now reaching the ears of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. They have discarded the scriptures that say the worker deserves his wages. They no longer heeded, if they ever did, the word of the Lord. And the daily, wager, the, the daily laborer, the one who, who has likely a subsistence-style living, who needs that, that daily wage for his food and for his bread, it's like literally taking life away by defrauding them of their due. To cheat someone from their wages was to perhaps deprive them of their very lives. And this is what they've done. And now the cries of the wages themselves, kind of an interesting image, right? You think of a dollar bill with a mouth. Uh, that's what it says. The, the wages are crying out against you. The, the cries of those laborers are now reaching the ears of the Lord himself. And notice how the Lord is talked about here. How is how he referenced? They've reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What is he saying by choosing to reference the Lord by that way? Like this Lord, he is in charge of a host, of an army that is, his, is doing his will at all times. This is the Lord of, of hosts. This is the God of all the universe. This is the God who, who sees all, who knows all. These Wealthy landowners, as they are defrauding the wages from their workers, what they do, they think in secret, God sees every last thing. And James is saying, the cries of the harvesters have now reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, and no one escapes the eyes and the vision of the Lord of hosts. So not only have they selfishly stockpiled wealth, They've done that by fraudulent means. The unrighteous wealthy also have lived a, a lifestyle of self-indulgence. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. Their lives were lined with plush. You know, in the original Greek, this, this word is like plush, soft luxury. It's, it's with things that most people don't have, things that are very expensive. This is how they've lived their lives, and they've done it at the expense of all the laborers in the field as they have defrauded them, a lifestyle of self-indulgence. And, 
And again, in, in the original, this, this has the connotation not just of ordering steaks all the time and having what you want in that kind of way of self-indulgence. It has the overtones of pushing past moral restraints. In other words, if there's anything that these can think of, these people can think of, that might increase their pleasure, regardless of what it is, they're going to push back, push past moral constraints and pursue them at any cost. This is their lives living in extravagance and self-indulgence. Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lived in self-indulgence all day long and had whatever he wants. And, and Lazarus, a poor man who, who slept out at his gate and he had sores on his body and he would ask, but there was no provision. And, and then that rich man dies and, and he's in hell. And he's asking just for Lazarus to dip the very tongue of his finger in the water that he might have his thirst slaked. And the answer is no. You've lived in luxury your whole life and Lazarus without. And now the roles have reversed because Lazarus was a man of faith. They have stockpiled their wealth. They've gained it by fraud. They've lived in self-indulgence and they have oppressed the righteous. Verse 6. Look at it there. It says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So by their deceptive practices, the unrighteous wealthy, to whom again this is addressed, have misused the righteous person. While it's possible that their unrighteousness may have actually gone so far as to literally murder some, uh, this expression could also represent the result of their behavior and their actions, withholding wages, robbing others of life itself, not being able to provide for their very own Needs, And notice the last verse, it says, the last line says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. How can the righteous person not resist when he encounters unrighteousness? The only way for the righteous person not to want to kick back, not to want to give it to, stick it to the man, is because the righteous person, person knows something the righteous person knows that God sees the righteous person is aware that God knows all and that in his justice in his perfect equity in his perfect understanding of all things he can entrust himself to almighty God in the midst of the abuses that he's experiencing to see the comfort that would come if you're if you're a member of this congregation and you are you're not receiving your pay and you're you're being reminded that that you don't need to strike back because God is faithful and he will make all things right in his time that's what he's saying and the righteous person he does not resist you it's it's an amazing way to end this section as this judgment comes down on this unregenerate wealthy oppressor now let me uh, now having heard the the judgment that was coming to those who did not know Christ those who did not place their faith and trust in Christ let let's think about together for a few minutes 
what this does mean for us. Because I think we can read this and say, oh, wow, those, those people are so bad. That's terrible. And it is. And it is. But I think we can lure ourselves into a false sense of security. Like, yeah, this, this passage doesn't really touch us. Well, in fact, it, it does. Can you imagine being in that church when this letter was read? Again, the impact it would have on your heart to hear about the judgment of God falling on the unbelievers around you as it relates to how they have used their wealth. I think it would have great effect. See, Jesus talks a lot about money in the Gospels. And throughout the epistles and the Old Testament, there is, there is much talk about money. Why? Because the way we spend our money, dear friends, me included, I'm preaching to myself, the way we spend our money reveals something about our hearts, right? In the same way that our words reveal what's going on in our hearts, so the way that we get out our wallet and spend it, it reveals what's going on in our hearts. So let's consider a couple ways of application of this word for us today. First of all, dear friends, beloved, check, check your heart. Check your heart and beware of the snare of wealth. Check your heart and beware of the snare of Wealth. See, James is not intending to pronounce judgment on any and every person who has wealth. That's not the issue. For, for that to be true, then God would have to have pronounced judgment on those he had blessed in the Old Testament, like Abraham, like Solomon, like Job. Uh, some of the characters of the Old Testament, God blessed, blessed immensely with Wealth, he did. And so the issue here isn't wealth in and of itself, it's the misuse of wealth. Now, that being said, however, it's true that Scripture, I want to be plain here, Scripture repeatedly warns that wealth can be a very strong obstacle to Christian discipleship. It can, it can ensnare us. Remember the parable of the sower. The sower is sowing the, the seed of the gospel and it's falling on different soils and, and the different soil that it falls on is representative of people's hearts and, and it falls on some rocky soil and some hard soil and some soft soil. And, and what, is, what does Christ say about that which fell on soil that was choked out with thorns? And when he, he describes what that means, it was the cares of this world, Jesus says, and the deceitfulness... The deceitfulness of riches that choke out the word when it's sown into our hearts. See, riches can be deceitful because riches promise something that they can never deliver upon. And we're, I, we can be easy prey to the deceitfulness of riches. Listen to how the Apostle Paul shared with young Pastor Timothy. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
Now, let me, let me stop there. What is a snare? I know we have some hunters and trappers in the room. A snare is a trap that you set usually for smaller animals. It's, it's like a wire opening that, that has a, a mechanical closing action so that you put it out in a field, you put it in the woods, you, you cover it with leaves so that you don't see it. And when something walks over it or through it and touches it, it closes on the leg and, and the animal can't get away. That's what a snare is. This is how the Word of God describes the allurement of wealth. That it's, it's a snare. A snare that traps us because we think that by pursuing wealth, we will enjoy a certain something that it will deliver us to a place of, of bliss of some type and we get pulled along by the deceitfulness of the snare of wealth. And yet when we actually walk in it, we find that, that we're a slave to the wealth that we thought was going to serve us. See, see, he says, take care, Jesus himself, take care and be on your guard. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Do you see? Take care. Watch your heart. Watch my heart. We must take care that we don't yield to the sin of covetousness. Now, what, why would Jesus say it that way? Take care. Well, because it's easy for all of us. If, it, if, it, if this were a, an uncommon temptation, he wouldn't need to say it that way. But because it's a common temptation for us to be ensnared by the lure of wealth, he's saying, take care. Take care. Watch your heart. Guard it carefully to, to realize that temptation comes at any moment. The love of money, what is it? It's dangerous. It ensnares our hearts. It makes us serve it. And it never provides what it promises. It's, it's a lie. Some of you like Tolkien, as I like watching his movies. And Thorin Oakenshield, the dwarf king from Tolkien's The Hobbit, what happened to Thorin Oakenshield, the dwarf king? What happened to Thorin is what happened to his father and his grandfather before him because the dwarves lived in the, the lonely mountains and they carved from the lonely mountains and a massive wealth of gold and precious gems. And Thorin Oakenshield, when he finally reclaimed his throne and this massive wealth, was before him. What happened to Thorin Oakenshield? Well, he got dragon sickness or gold sickness. In other words, his love of all that money drove him mad. It drove him mad. He became so consumed with the wealth that all he could think about was his wealth. He didn't care about his friends he didn't care about his brothers. He didn't care if protecting his wealth meant their death. He was consumed with his wealth. And for a time, it drove him mad. His priorities were gone. His friendships were lost. His life was entrapped. Actually, like a slave. 
to his wealth. He thought his wealth was serving him, but in fact, he was a slave to his wealth. He thought he possessed his wealth when in fact, his wealth possessed him. And if we think that we're so unlike Thor and Oakenshield that that could never happen to us, this testimony in James stands to say, oh, not so fast. Dear brother, beloved, check your heart. Ask God. Is it easier to spend 200 bucks on something for yourselves than to give that same 200 bucks away? Beware of the snare of wealth. Jeremy, beware of the snare of wealth. What does Jesus say? He says it this way. No one, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, it's not possible, you cannot serve God and money. So dear friends, application point number one, let's just check our hearts. Let's be honest before the Lord. Let's ask him, Lord, is there any way in me that I've, I've yielded to the snare of wealth? Because God, by his grace, opens that trap, frees us, and enables us to go once again. And so he is here to minister grace. But in order to open that trap, we first have to acknowledge that we might be in it. And so, dear friends, let us check our hearts. Application point Number two, this one is proactive. Lay up your treasure in heaven, not on earth. See, the unrighteous wealthy laid up treasures for themselves on the earth. We see that in verse three. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, why would they do that? Except that, again, they believed that that was going to do something for them, which it did nothing for them as it rotted away. Their, their linens were gone, their, their gold, their silver, it was corroded. It was not worth anything. Instead, Jesus calls, rather than lay up treasure on earth, to lay up treasure in heaven. To go after the things that are eternal, the things that last. Now let me quote Jesus himself here again uh, from the Beatitudes in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves Treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. (laughs) I love how Jesus makes an argument from the practical. He's like, why do you lay up treasure here on earth when... When, when you have wealth, then you got to worry about it. you gotta, you got to protect it so it's not stolen. you got to make sure it's in a good storage so it doesn't get moisture and, and rot away. You have to worry about it like so that it, it, your stock market doesn't take wings and just fly away. you know, you got to worry about wealth. So why worry about it where people can come in and steal as opposed to laying it up in heaven? Now, I admit to you, this, this is hard to know exactly what this means. Like, okay, Lord, how do I do this? It's hard to know. But let me offer a few thoughts. It's hard to know. But I think one of the ways that we lay up treasure in heaven is we invest in the things that matter for 
eternity. We invest in things that, that matter for eternity, like the building of God's church, right? Because this is what he is committed to build. He's going to build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so it means to invest in things of eternity when we give to the work and the building of God's kingdom on the earth. And that's done locality by locality through the building of his church. It means giving of your time and your resources to build the kingdom of God. It means to promote and further the joy of Jesus Christ for all people in and through the proclamation of the gospel. Since Jesus is our treasure, we lay up treasures in heaven by affirming that treasure here. And when we affirm that treasure here, it will affect the way that we use the resources that God has given to us. Randy Alcorn, with a small book that I would just encourage you to grab sometime, it's called The Treasure Principle. He says it this way, He who lays up treasure in heaven looks forward to eternity. He who lays up treasure in heaven looks forward to eternity. Why? Because Jesus commands us to lay up treasure in heaven that we might enjoy it there. Not keep it all here, but lay it up in heaven by investing in things that are eternal because he will give it back to us a hundredfold there. So lay up treasure in heaven. I was reading my friend Piper as well, his reflections. He says it in this way. Therefore, laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven would be living in such a way as to maximize God As your treasure. Handle your money in such a way as to show that God and not money is your treasure. Handle your wallet, your checkbook, in such a way as to demonstrate that God is your greatest treasure and not the money within the account. When we do this, people take notice of it. When we When we have Christ as our supreme treasure, people will see, people will notice, and people will say, why is it that you love to give money away? Why is it that you love to serve other people? Why is it that you you love to do these things when I don't see that you're getting any benefit out of it? And it gives us an opportunity to say, because this is the the call of Christ. This is the, the God I serve. He was a giving God. He gave his only son that I might be forgiven. So now, in view of how he's changed my heart, I want to give. Laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven is living in such a way as to maximize your joy and your pleasure in the Lord that we might see and enjoy him in greater measure. Third and final application point uh, from this passage Actively proclaim the only true treasure, the everlasting Christ. When I was reading this, dear friends, in the office this week, I, um, I just kept reading it and reading it, and, and my heart was grieved for actually the people to whom this is addressed. Can you imagine being someone who is so duped by the snare of treasure that, that you would be totally lost in putting all your hope in money? Can you imagine how desperate a condition that would be to be thinking that money would deliver you from, from whatever you think it would deliver you from. And, and so this, this is actually a passage that, that motivates us to share the hope that we have, right? 
We, we don't envy the unrighteous wealthy. Like, what good does wealth do? What, what, what possibly could that gain when the whole huge stockpile of wealth could never amount to our sins being forgiven, to a conscience being cleansed? You know, Julie's starting, she's been working now down in Lansdale at, at a, a crisis pregnancy center and and she's encountered ladies that, and I, I don't know their stories. She doesn't share them with me. Uh, but, but I know enough to know that she's encountering ladies who are experiencing sorrow and regret for former decisions related to children. And even in that, there is, there is a conscience burden that comes with decisions that we've made, either of that type or of other types. And the only thing, the only thing that wipes consciences clean is Jesus Christ. He is what we proclaim. He is our treasure. He is our hope. No, no amount of millions of dollars can do what Christ alone can do. And so this church is what we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus Christ. He is our treasure. He is our hope. He is what we proclaim because he can do what no amount of money can ever do. And so, dear friends, I pray that this would in its own way motivate us to reach out to people who are caught in the trap and in the thought that 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 wealth will bring them something good because it won't. It won't deliver. It never does. And so we turn to the Lord and ask Him to give us boldness and give us joy as we proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ. Let me ask the, the worship team to join me now on the stage as we prepare our hearts for a close. So um, how do we then respond to this word? Well, we say, first of all, Lord, thank you for preserving this word. If, if you're feeling like the surgeon's knife has come in and, and cut at you, then that's a good thing because the surgeon has good in mind. The surgeon wants to cut out the things that, that need to be cut out to give us life, not to take our lives. And so where the Lord is, is doing his work in our hearts, let us respond to that. Jesus warns us through this passage about the love of money, about the snare of wealth, that, that we would not be drawn into evil practices to try and accumulate money for our own means by illegal ways. No, we walk in uprightness. And when God gives us out of the generosity of his heart. When he gives to us, it's then our delight to, to receive it with gladness and enjoy it for, for the good of not just ourselves, but for all people, that we might use what he's given for his purposes. That we might lay up treasure not for ourselves, that we might not be about the business of building our own little kingdom, but rather build his glorious, eternal, everlasting kingdom. Why? Because he is our treasure. Because he has done what no amount of wealth could ever do. So let me, let me close with this thought. What would you do if you were awarded $65 million in 2023? Here's my prayer that I would use that $65 million 
to declare that Christ is my treasure. To declare that there's nothing so great as the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. That he might be glorified in our hearts and in our minds. So, dear friends, our worth is not, we're going to sing this in one minute, our, ner- our worth is not in what we own, but our worth is found only in the supreme and surpassing treasure of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me as we prepare our hearts to respond? Lord, we confess that sometimes we we fall prey to the snare and the allurement of, of wealth. Thinking that through accumulation we will find happiness and joy when in fact it doesn't deliver. Lord, when you give us resources and gifts, you are so kind to us. And we have all been given much that we could then give in return and share in what you've done and in the grace that you've shown. And so, Lord, help us to check our hearts this morning. Help us to lay up our treasure, not here on earth, but help us to lay up our treasure in heaven. And help us, Lord, to declare to a watching world the hope of sins forgiven, of consciences being cleansed. No amount of money could ever do what Christ has done. And so we close our time now, Lord, by declaring you are our great treasure, Lord. We love you for your mercy and your kindness in giving us life. And we pray that you would cause our hearts to reflect that rightful praise. We pray this together and all God's people said, amen.